Welcome to Nothing Never Happens, the Radical Pedagogy Podcast. Our podcast guest today is a scholar, writer, blogger, activist, movement builder, workshop leader, transformative justice, and human rights and disability justice educator. Mia Mingus is a co-founder of the Bay Area Transformative Justice Collective, Building Transformative Justice Responses to Child Sexual Abuse, and the founder and leader of SOIL, a transformative justice project. Mia is the recipient of numerous awards, including the Creating Change Award from the National Gay and Lesbian Task Force, a 40 Under 40 Award from The Advocate, an API Women's Champion of Change, a Ford Foundation Disability Futures Fellow, and a Robert Cole's Call of Service Award from Harvard University. Mia is about dreaming accountability, as the title of one of her Leaving Evidence blogs relates. The beginning question of transformative justice is, what are the conditions that allowed for that violence or that harm to be able to take place in the first place? The focus is on oppressive systems and building new liberatory structures. This justice work is done in intersectional and interdependent community. In Mia's words, magnificence comes out of struggle. We talk with Mia about many aspects of social justice education, including the educational experiences that inspired her to do justice work, her use of a transformative justice framework for community accountability and creative intervention, her pedagogy of workshopping, and her use of pod mapping for organizing and movement building. Mia inspires us to consider words like dignity, love, compassion, care, and justice in ways that address harm and violence and also bring concrete repair and change. We are thrilled to have Mia Mingus on our podcast. Welcome to Nothing Never Happens. Mia, thank you so much for being here. We're just going to dive right in, um, and we'd love to hear from you, um, and I know our listeners would too, about how you got into the work that you do and some of the influences that um, have shaped your, your approach to pedagogy and to justice work. Well, hi. Thanks for having me. This is so wonderful to be here, and you know, as an Agnes Scott alum, it's just really great, especially. Um, so the way that I got into doing this work, it's it's so funny. Like I, so I was born in Korea. I was adopted to St. Croix in the U.S. Virgin Islands when I was uh, six months old. And um, the family that I was adopted in, so I was adopted into a white family living on the island of St. Croix, which which at that time and still is predominantly a black Caribbean island in particular. Um, and occupied and colonized by the United States or a territory, um, so we, which just means we don't have as many rights as Puerto Rico, which means we have like zero rights. <laughs> like we don't even get to vote um, in the presidential elections. Um, but the family that I was adopted into, my mother was part of founding the Women's Coalition of St. Croix, um, along with 10, nine other women, excuse me, um, so 10 total. 
And so I was kind of raised in this very activist um, environment. And I was raised around the Women's Coalition growing and it's still kicking and it's like now a huge organization. And I was raised in that those like early days. And so I really got to see women organizing for themselves when no one else would. And, you know, it was a multiracial group of women as well. And so I feel really lucky that I got to be raised around, especially, I mean, powerful women across the board, but then also, especially a lot of um, powerful women of color. And um, I mean, a very early influence. I mean, obviously all of the you know, the tight-knit feminist community that I was brought up in, um, many, many, many of those folks. But also, you know, like Audre Lorde was one of the founding members of the Women's Coalition and her partner, Gloria Joseph, who just passed um, passed away just a, a couple of years back. And so, you know, she Audre was a huge influence um, to me and I was lucky enough to get to like meet her and um, Gloria, you know, since Audrey's passing, I mean, before then as well, but like would come to our house and spend holidays with us. Um, and so um, I feel like that kind of very rural uh, atmosphere and the, all of those pieces were part of my early influence. And, um, you know, like I think also being from our, and being raised in a very rural place, like there's influences of people but then also I think just the natural world because you're just part of and connected to um and in uh you know the natural world in ways that in cities you you just are not and so like you know trees and the hills and the ocean and the rainforest and so I feel like a lot of that was that de were definitely influences but I think especially this feeling of like we can just create what we need with what we have and we can just do it. And, you know, the early days of the coalition, I remember were, they were very shoestring, you know, just patching the $2 you had and stretching them as far as they would making something out of nothing kind of days and, and like getting to witness the growth of it. Um, just, I don't know, spoke to me in this way of just like, we can create anything and it, it just it, it it's just a matter of like commitment time effort like we can we can do it and you know I spent my childhood going to take back the night marches and making purple ribbons <laughs> for, for domestic violence awareness month and so um I would say like that was a huge huge piece and then um I you know so it set me on a trajectory to do social justice work, but then there were many things along the way, obviously, that got me into the specific kinds of social justice work I do. Yeah, you've had a lot of experience with different groups, um, with Karis Books and More, shout yeah. out to our feminist bookstore that's now across the street from Agnes Scott, um, and uh, Spark Reproductive Justice Now and the National um, uh, human rights education uh, group that sadly is no more. But so out of all that, you had a lot of experience, um, you know, with just so, so many systemic issues. 
as well as you know specific women's lives being affected by this. Um, and you were out uh, doing trainings and workshops using that human rights framework and one uh, eventually transformative justice. So I'm kind of cramming everything in here at once, but I attended a workshop of yours that you did at Agnes Scott many years ago on reproductive justice. And I was cleaning out some notes the other day and I found the notes from that workshop. <laughs> It was such a good workshop, and that prompts me to ask the question, with these frameworks that you have and, and these this, you know, multi-issues um, uh, of commitment, how, what's your pedagogy of, of workshopping? How do you, how do you um, enter into, you know, getting a, a group of strangers usually, um, you know, that you don't know uh, their needs and wants, but to get them, on, you know, to, to begin to listen and do some deep listening on these issues? That's a really huge question, um, but I appreciate it. You know, it's so interesting. I, so one, I think just being somebody who is from multiple oppressed identities and having to kind of live that every day like having to to engage with people who maybe I share zero identities with or maybe just one or maybe just two and engaging with them in a way that that they're either open to hearing about the other pieces or or in a way where their guard drops and they're not as threatened by it um I feel like has prepared me a lot <laughs> to be able to do uh, teaching in that way. And I, I feel really lucky that I get to teach, by the way, like it's, it's, it's hard work, but it's also really just, yeah, very, it feels very like nourishing to me. Um, but, you know, I think a lot of it is just instinctual things that I don't even, you know, that almost feel like air. I don't even realize necessarily. So, so I think a lot of it is like the the tenor and tone that the facilitator or the educator brings to to the class or the training or the workshop or what have you and you kind of set help to set the tone because um you know so I I definitely like I'm kind of silly or I joke around as a way to just like get people to to loosen their shoulders up so to speak metaphoric I mean literally and metaphorically um, but also, you know, all of the things that I teach about, I mean, so I'm thinking about transformative justice in particular, but, but also disability justice, reproductive justice, when I used to do a lot of RJ work, um, all of them are frameworks that everybody can, in my mind, at least everybody can and should be able to relate to because everybody is connected to, even if you're not disabled, for example, you still interact with ableism and whether you whether that means you benefit off of it whether you leverage it for your benefit or other people's benefit um every single person whether they're disabled or not knows somebody who's disabled um so you know i think i always enter in through that that door of just like there's already a connection here and how do we help how do i help to unearth that but also, I feel like a huge part of the way that I think about teaching is that oftentimes we already have 
these things inside of us. It's just more about like giving permission to people to, to try new things or to experiment, for example, or tap into their creativity um, to, you know, especially with transformative justice, for example, where an abolition work, where it's like the notion of, for example, like safety or accountability or healing. These are universal concepts that everybody has had some type of interaction with and, and exists in some ways in people's lives, whether that's, you know, the lack of accountability, you know, or watching, witnessing accountability that's not, that's actually more about punishment, not necessarily about being generative and proactive. Um, so I also feel like there's a sense of, in, in my mind, teaching, a lot of the teaching I do is really just about like welcoming people into this and like inviting them to join these conversations and to join this work and and letting them know that that there is a space there's space for everybody here you know and obviously you know you have to be respectful you need to <laughs> there you know there's there's conditions around that in terms of like how you are part of the work and that is different in terms of different people's location and different people's identities and experiences for example and both and I really truly believe that if we're going to get to a, the world that we all long for and want, it's going to take all of us. It's going to take all of us. And it's not just going to be the cool kids. It's not just going to be your friends. It's not just going to be the people that you like. Um, it's going to have to include as many people as we can. And so I really believe in like reaching outside of the kind of like social justice bubble and reaching into like our families, our intimate networks, you know, like a lot of us, for example, who are social, who are activists or who are engaged in social justice work in whatever way that looks. Um, a lot of us don't necessarily have those same kind of conversations with like our parents or our neighbors or, you know, and so I think that that is where a lot of the work needs to happen. And I, so I'm always like in that mindset I don't know if that answers your question. I hope it does. That's really yeah. thoughtful and makes me want to follow up to ask, like, if you have concrete examples for how you work through kind of particular, particular issues, particular group dynamics, I'll tell you one that, and that I am particularly cognizant of in my own um, organizing and teaching practices right now is about, um, um, the ways that systemic oppression and hierarchies and interpersonal violence can reproduce its, itself within collectives and groups that are fighting to dismantle those same systems outside of themselves. Maryam Kaba and um, her writing sometimes talks about this as, you know, the, the, the systems it, it exist inside of us and outside of us. And when our organizers who are working towards abolition being cops to one another, um, when are people making each other disposable while working to stop harm in other ways? One thing that I observe within myself, within collaborators and students and teaching contexts is how the profound vulnerabilities of like living in a world that is structured in so many kinds of violence spill over into places that are trying to be about transformation um, 
as a mode of self-defense and protection and putting up guardrails um, that keep folks from entering into relationships that can produce transformation. And so that's a rambly way of introducing the question, but I'm curious to hear you reflect on that. And especially if you have some concrete examples of how you've worked through that, whether in your own life or with groups you've been in process with, um, that that many of our listeners could, could also learn from and think with you about. Yeah, no, thank you. That's I mean, that particular phenomenon or dynamic happens all the time. And I think, you know, in some ways it's like, yes, it is a dynamic and a phenomenon. In other ways, though, it's just what it means to be human in this inhumane world. Like, of course, the conditions that we're operating in are going to arise and come up inside of our work, inside of our relationships, inside of ourselves, because we, you know, I say this all the time, our social justice movements and ourselves as well, we don't exist in a vacuum. Our work doesn't exist in a vacuum. It exists in the same conditions that have shaped this very violent and oppressive world. So I think on the one hand, for us to naively act as if that would not, we wouldn't be affected by those things, right? Because Here's the thing, <laughs> oftentimes when something happens, so on the one hand, many, many people in social justice communities, we can dissect everything down to like oblivion and analyze it. And we know we're like, these are the problems. This is what's wrong. This, this is terrible. You know, this is what privilege is. This kind of oppression is happening, whatever. And then on the other hand, we expect people to act as if that is not the world that they were shaped and molded in and that they were born into. And we, and then so when somebody exhibits anything resembling those systems or conditions, we like fly off the handle around it. We're like, how dare you? Oh my gosh, you're a terrible person. You're toxic, you're oppressive, whatever. And I feel like there's like a cognitive dissonance that happens where we don't <laughs> seem to understand that like we're super smart on the one hand to be able to analyze and and identify these things. And then on the other hand, it's as if we just have totally forgotten all of those things. And so to me, I feel like part of what we are trying to do is, or at least in my mind, right, is to understand that and this is what I think where transformative justice comes in often, right? Like where abolition, the, the um, framework of abolition comes in, in terms of just saying like, we all will make mistakes. We are all molded in these oppressive and violent conditions. And we have to figure out a way to deal with harm, mistakes, hurt, you know, problematic behavior, whatever term you want to use. We have to figure out a way to deal with that generatively in a way that's not destructive and in a way that can actually help to deepen and grow relationship and grow love and healing and accountability, all of these things. Um, and so when I like, uh, you know, engage or what am I saying? So when I meet these kind of things in or I'm face to face with them in like work that I'm doing, Oftentimes, in TJ, a, a core concept is, you know, 
that we're connecting incidences of harm with the conditions that created them and perpetuate them. And, and we are saying in transformative justice that incidences of harm or violence cannot be separated from the conditions that created them and allowed for them to happen in the first place and then continue to perpetuate them and you know continue to deepen them, et cetera. So in doing that, oftentimes when something happens, when these kind of dynamics come up, I look to the conditions, like what are the conditions that we're in and how do we not just go toe to toe with whatever the thing that happened was, whether it's, you know, very common things like people who are working to end domestic violence, for example, inside of their organization, there is abuse happening <laughs> and like abuse of power, for example. Um, the, the, there's so many examples of it, but that's just one. Right. Instead of looking at the one particular harm, we say, like, what are the what are the other conditions? You know, the organization that I started is named Soil. And I named that it's, it's named Soil, a transformative justice project. And I named it Soil because we have to stop planting plants in toxic or barren soil and expect them to grow and thrive. And we have to look at what our soil is, what our conditions are, and work to shift our conditions rather than just screaming and yelling at the plants and saying, why, why didn't you grow better? What happened? Or expecting a giant harvest instead of understanding that this plant is probably going to plant, going to produce maybe one or two peppers this season, but we're going to save those seeds plant them again next time it might produce 10 or 15 and then we're going to save those seeds right and and the whole while we're going to be building up our soil if you ask any gardener or farmer worth their salt they tell you you have to build up your soil sometimes they do that for a year or years before they even plant anything and obviously plants are part of built can be part of building up the soil too but so I'm, I say all that to say that that when I talk about these conditions, the other part of the dynamic that you're talking about is trauma and that we are living in a time of incredible amounts of trauma, both individual and collectively and generational trauma as well. The, and most of us don't have access to the healing practices or practitioners. Um, we don't have access to healing that is comprehensive or that is um, attuned to, and uh, what am I trying to say, that is um, a, about our, that is grounded in our particular cultural histories and lineages, right? And so that is a huge part of it as well. So I guess what I would say is, one, we look to the conditions and we look at what are, what are the conditions surrounding this and how have they helped to create this and I say that to say, it's not about letting anybody off the hook for their own individual behavior, but it is about saying, because to me, this is about how do we end violence and harm, not just how do we respond to this one particular incident. And of course, because if you just are about responding to one particular incident, yeah, you could scream at somebody all day long, but if yelling and screaming at somebody created accountability and a shift and a change in that behavior, 
we would all be totally accountable and we would, we would be in a very different, you know, we would live in a very different world. But the other part of that, right, is to also then say, okay, then how can we respond to this in a way that meets the immediate needs of what happened, whether that's immediate accountability or what have you, but that also changes and shifts the conditions? And how do we not get thrown off by it? How do we be like, expect it and be like, right, this makes sense. It makes sense that somebody raised in a white supremacist country or world would exhibit white supremacist behaviors. We're not accepting the, that or we're not going to tolerate that, but we are going to understand it because we can't respond well if we don't understand. We can't respond well to harm if we don't understand it. And so um, that's a little bit of a long and rambly. No, that's that's amazing. Yes, um, you're you're talking about accountability and you know engaging um, the groups that you teach and getting toward uh, working to understand the conditions and to name them and to name their own social locations in that um, individually, systemically, generationally, uh, as you said. Um, how do you how do you concretely to go further with Lucia's uh, previous question, engage people in the examination of this, to, of harm and violence um, as you're working toward um, the concept of repair and um, you know, getting to the heart of these things so that there can be healing. Yeah, I mean, the beginning of engaging with folks, at least what I, the way that I do it is I always start with yourself. And so we always begin with, because the thing about accountability and repair is that we always, most 99.9% .9 of the time, people are like, that person needs to be accountable. We're always looking outside of ourselves, right? Whether it's to another person, to a system, whatever. But um, what, so the way that I always begin is to start looking at ourselves. And we all have places that we can grow around our own accountability. And it's because we all cause harm and or have the capacity to cause great harm. Um, and we all have hurt people we, we love or care about. We all have made mistakes. We all have acted not in alignment with our values. Um, and we all have done things that we are ashamed about or that we are not proud of. So I think beginning with ourselves is a very powerful way to do that. And so like, for example, I have this intro transformative justice intensive that I do. That's really just an extended introduction to transformative justice. Um, who knows, maybe one day I'll do it at Agnes Scott. I don't know. And so um, one of the things we do in that training is we, it's like, you know, we have multiple, many sessions in that training. And so over the course of the training, um, I say, pick one thing that you want to be accountable to yourself about, not to anybody else, but just to yourself. Maybe it's you want to make more time for your art. <laughs> Maybe it's that you want to drink more water in the day. I know that's something that I every day struggle with. <laughs> Maybe, you know, one person I remember in one workshop was like, or one of the trainings was like, I, my thing is that I want to try to eat one green thing a day, at least, because I really struggle with 
eating green things. And they're like, I don't care if it's one pea, but that's what I'm going to choose. And, and then you are buddied up with somebody else who is also doing the same thing. And so in that, you're learning through that very benign little um, activity on accountability that runs throughout the entire course, you are learning about your own accountability. You're learning about what you do and what you don't do because you have to not only be buddied up with them, but you have to be accountable to them and check in with them and say, did you do your 10 minutes of meditation today? Did you go on a walk today? Whatever whatever it is that you're doing. Um, and it's so fascinating because I think when we talk about accountability, uh, you even when things are small, we our reactions are still very big. So like if somebody if you didn't do your, you know, if I didn't if I didn't get my if I didn't go to sleep at whatever, 10 o'clock that night, if that was my thing, right? Instead of staying up till like one in the morning watching Netflix and binging shows. Uh, what I find in these trainings is that people exhibit the same kind of behaviors as if they didn't do something much bigger, right? Like they they don't, they hide away or they just stop texting or caught communicating with the other person or they feel so much shame or they don't want to talk about it or, and it's, it's a way for you to learn about what you do, right? And what, what your particular behaviors or things come up around accountability. But then it's also on the other side, a way for you to learn about when somebody is accountable to you, what do you do? So like, if it's me and you, Tina, right? And I didn't do my thing, for example, then that's also on you to think through, oh, Mia has stopped communicating with me and she doesn't respond when I call her or email, whatever the mode of communication we've decided is, right? Like when I text her, she doesn't respond anymore. What's going on? And then it's also for you to learn and start to experiment like, well, one, to confront the stuff that comes up for you around that, right? It might be like, a conflict avoidance stuff from might be fear around like I don't want to I don't want to reach out to her again maybe she'll be mad at me whatever right or it might be getting mad at me right or it might be this kind of like um over like a uh, harsh teacher kind of vibe that comes up but then also then you get to think through like what are the ways that I might be able to assist Mia in 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 just coming to the table again so that we can talk about what happened not even, and then of course, helping me to, to do what I need to do. But so that's just like one very concrete example of like beginning to engage people in this, because before we can even get to talking about repair, we have to get some of these basics down around accountability. And we have to get some of these basics down around what your specific pieces around accountability are. Because they're different for everybody. Some people run and hide. Other people rush to address the problem, but it's about fixing it and kind of getting it to go away because they can't handle how uncomfortable it feels, right? So, and et cetera, et cetera. There's a thousand different manifestations of it. Yeah, that's really helpful. Thanks. I love that, especially because I think about, okay, like what if you stayed up you know, past 10 last night and we're binging Love Island. Yeah. And um, 
And then we're hiding and didn't want to talk about it. But then if you came to me and, and like, finally we're at the table, you know, it pains me to imagine that I would be like, Mia, like, what the hell were you doing? Like, Love Island <laughs> is trash. Like, and imagine myself berating you or being like, how dare you? You're a bad activist. You're a bad femme. I think that like, that's so much easier to do if I imagine, if I imagine myself as not in relationship with you, if like I've transferred the, if I'm like saying, oh, I'm an avalanche abolitionist but what that really means is that I'm actually just going to be a vigilante the <laughs> casual cop this exercise is so useful because it asks people too much well how would I respond to someone who hadn't been accountable and what does that mean accountability is and how, how do we manifest accountability in our relationships and, and what is helpful yes yes and because one of the things we know is that accountability only happens in relationships so you know it's also I feel like uh, a piece of that is also about how do I build relationship, just period, with this person who maybe I'm not as close to. And then hopefully some of that transfers out into your real life with people who you are friends with or who you are in loving and caring relationships with, where, you know, of course, then you have that relationship, which might help it. But, you know, it's so interesting what you're saying, though, because some people, when they do this exercise, they do it like perfectly because it's about like being a good student. It's about getting that, you know, it's about that feeling of superiority, right? Like maybe we're paired up together and I'm like doing everything right. I'm doing my meditation every single day or my yoga or whatever it is, right? And like, you're not doing it. And it's a way for me to feel superior to you. And so also in talking and the check-ins that happen between the buddies, it's also talking about like, what is motivating you? right? Like what, how are you doing that? Because a part of this is not only just to do it, but it's also to reflect on if you are doing it, what, what has been allowing that, sorry, what makes that possible? What allows for you to be able to practice it? And to also examine that in, right? So, cause there's like the not doing it. And then you talk about why you didn't do it and what are the things, but then there's also when you do do it, huh? Isn't that interesting? And why is it that I can do it for this exercise, but I can't do it on my own in my everyday life? It, it's kind of like that thing of where you like, you know, you'll super clean your house if somebody's coming over and you have a guest, but like you don't, <laughs> and it's so wonderful, like for, you know, one day after, and then it just goes back. And like, why don't we do that for ourselves? I'm sure, well, maybe some people listening are like, I have a perfect clean house all the time. That's wonderful for you. I don't think most of us are like that. No. And I think about like the moment of sharing is the person who has a wonderful clean house be like, well, I can help you clean your house. Um, <laughs> what's going on there in the like sharing that you're able to do something and I'll just help you along. Like in what ways does paternalism show up in these like moments of accountability um, or not? Yeah, yeah. definitely. Mm. It's okay. a fascinating experiment. Even just to imagine how it plays out. I think, um, you know, I'm doing a class. This class is called Organize Solidarity and Theory and Practice. And one of the parts is everybody is in a small group that's consistent across the semester. Groups interact with each other outside of my presence as the instructor. So they have their own dynamic. I give a little bit of a framework for rotating chairs, rotating timekeeper. And a number of the groups have decided they're going to hold each other accountable for different practices, like going to community meetings or, um, you know, doing the reading, doing the assignments. 
that is not something that I asked them to do, but the language of accountability is so pervasive, but it helps me imagine like, how could we use this sort of mainstreaming of accountability as, um, as a term that's happened, that's circulating in social justice circles, but also certainly is not, um, exclusive to them and is often like quite um, carceral in its manifestation um yeah. and how can we like lean into that so I'm, I'm grateful for this this moment of reflection yeah and it's really interesting with the with that activity I don't check in on them at all it's a because it's it's for you it's not about did you do the assignment well it's and mm. if you don't do it some some pairs they they fall off and they don't do it. And that's, you know, that like, and it's not even like there's zero judgment. Like it's really up to you. Or maybe it's not the time in your life where you're able to practice that. That's totally fine. But it's like, here's an opportunity to do this. And, you know, because TJ is self-motivated. You have to be self-motivated to do it. It's not, accountability should be proactive. It's not something where, you know, we don't want to, we want to move away from like holding people accountable. We want to instead support people to take accountability. Those two things are so different because holding people accountable, oftentimes, as you were referring to, replicates a lot of the punitive culture and carceral culture we're in. Yeah. And this seems so important to lay the groundwork for dealing with these really massive systemic issues uh, that you do in terms of abolitionism, disability justice, um, prison, uh, well, we talked about prison abolition, uh, child sex abuse, I mean, really heavy stuff. And you've created, um, you know, interaction and hopefully some community building, uh, that people can get to know each other in <laughs> sometimes, uh, difficult ways, but, uh, and, and then be able to have some fuel or something. I don't know what the right word is as a, um, as they approach these more overwhelming issues. Yeah, definitely. Is there kind of a bridge from that to, you know, okay, we're going to talk about reproductive justice or <laughs> uh, uh, prison reform or, you know. To me, that is the bridge because, listen, if we can't even <laughs> be accountable to each other, how are we going to demand accountability from like another entity or another large group of people. Like if we don't even know what accountability is between each other, how will we know what it actually is? Because again, like I said, we, or maybe I didn't say this here, but we throw the word accountability around all the time. But I don't think that most of us know what that means. And I don't think that most of us know what it looks like. Because listen, Questions about accountability are inevitably questions about justice. Questions about justice are inevitably questions about accountability. So what we are trying to do, right? Like let's start small and build our muscles up small because you don't go to the gym and just start bench pressing 500 pounds immediately. Like you got to build up to that. You don't sit down at a piano and just play a, you know, a beautiful classical music piece. You start with the basics. So let's start small and figure out what does justice look like between each other? Meaning what does accountability look like between each other so that we can actually be able to fight these systems of oppression? And the other side of that, Tina, is not only so that we're able to like 
know what we're asking for and demanding, have a better vision of how we want accountability and justice to look like. But also, and this is the kicker, <laughs> a lot of our movements and initiatives and campaigns to fight against these systemic forms of oppression fall apart because of internal conflict, because of because we don't know how to practice generative conflict, because we don't know how to practice and take accountability for ourselves, for and with each other, and what we don't know how to do repair and how to do healing. And so um, healing, I should say, individually and collectively, especially collectively. And so when things fall apart, like, you know, organizations fall apart, for example, or campaigns or coalition work. And oftentimes you can trace it back to very small things that were never handled well or large things that were never handled well. And again, if we can't handle the small things between us, how will we be able to handle the big things between us? And handling the small things can help prevent the big things from happening. So to me, they're all bound up together because you know, work around accountability, transformative justice work, like it is, it cuts across every, there's no demographic community group of people to, that are meeting together as an organization, as a class, at, you know, whatever, as a family, there's no place where there's not harm or hurt happening or conflict happening or full-blown violence and abuse. And so to me, these are like, not even just about like systemic oppression conversations or whatever. This is just about general life. Like why aren't children taught how to give a genuine apology in schools that is more than just like this kind of, you know, just say you're sorry and then it's done. Like, why aren't we taught these things? Why aren't kids in school learning about repair, learning about accountability, obviously in age appropriate ways, but like, this should be a part of everything we do at, at Agnes Scott, at every college campus, at every conference. There should be a track or course dedicated to these types of things. Um, it should be unthinkable that people can reach adulthood without learning about and practicing um, some of these skills. I um. I am looking at, I mean, I'm looking at the, the, uh, our, our time and we've already been talking for so long and we could talk forever. Um, I am curious. So like, I think one of the themes that- Oh, wait, can I just add one more thing? I'm so yeah, sorry. Of course, of course. So no, no, go for it. I just want to add one more thing to what I was saying. Sorry. It's just that because I, because I also feel like in learning these individual skills for, let's just take white supremacy, for example, let's just take racism and, um, you know, white privilege. If we learn these skills, can you imagine how that would shift and change people who benefit from white white privilege, how that would shift and change their behavior and how they like respond to and orient to, right, their privilege when they have enacted their privilege, how they're a part of a, this broader system, right, um, of racism, white supremacy, et cetera, that is actively harming so many people and actively abusing and being violent towards so many people. Like that would that would be amazing. And the same with, you know, men and sexism, et cetera, et cetera. So I I just wanted to add that because I feel like 
there's the campaign work, there's the social justice movement work around like fighting these systems of oppression. But then there's also, if we all learn this, it would be on an individual and collective basis that then would, I think, radically shift and change the kinds of work we could do to dismantle these systems on literally every level. Okay, I'm ready for your question now. No, no, that's that's perfect. I'm so glad you said that because what I was going to ask is about um, sort of frameworks for overcoming or dis dismantling or rendering illusory or the binary that is often set up between sort of uh, praxis, um, like individual interpersonal justice work and like going to a protest and being on the streets. Like, um, I think sometimes it's hard to recognize that the internal work that people do or the work that they do to talk to their families, that is TJ work, that is transformative. And often some of the hardest, some of the hardest conflicts to have aren't the ones that involve dressing someone down from a microphone, but in fact, um, being with people you love and deeply care for. Um, and I want to transition this um, into a question about pod mapping. I would love for you to explain to us what, what pod mapping is. Um, the reason I'm asking about it in this context is that, you know, I think one of the things that pod mapping is, is sort of identifying who, who one is in community with, both sort of immediate, deep um, bonds and connections, but also ones that are further out within a larger network. Sometimes those, those kinds of very um, close community contexts are the places where we work out exactly the how to be in conflict in more macro ways and how to be in transformation in more macro ways. Um, I'm curious if you can tell us what is pod mapping um, and how, how does it relate to some of these um, practices of, of justice, transformation, and care that we've been, that we've been talking about? Okay, so first of all, first of all, I just want to say personal and systemic transformation are bound up together. They they cannot be separated. There is no way that we are going to, you know, take down systems of oppression and then continue to like go home and beat up on each other. Like we or vice versa, have this like apoliticized personal transformation that's like not connected to anything. They're bound up together. They're inter mutually interdependent on each other. And so the work is to transform ourselves as we're also working to transform the world together, both and. I think about Grace Lee Boggs, who, sp who spoke a lot about that. Um, so in terms of pod mapping, pod mapping, <laughs> I could talk forever about it. Okay, so <laughs> your pod are the people that you would call on if you were experiencing violence, harm, or abuse, even emergency, crisis. So like during the pandemic, for example, pods became a very big popular concept. Um, but the way that I know it, which is how it originated, which is through the BATJC, um, and which I was lucky enough to get to be a, a a part of helping to found and then was a member for like nine years before and I transitioned. Like Bay Area Transformative Justice Collective for those who don't know. There you go. There you go. Um, and so we created pods, the concept of pods as basically it through in transformative justice work. And now it has become, in my mind at least, a very like a cornerstone and a foundational piece of TJ. 
transformative justice, not Trader Joe's. Um, and so, because the thing about abolition work is that, and specifically TJ work, but abolition as a whole, is that if we're not going to call the cops and we're not going to rely on prisons or even the court systems, for example, or foster care, ICE, et cetera, that means that it's us. It's us who will have to respond to all of these many different forms of harm. And I don't think people put that together. I think it's very easy to go out and like hold up a sign in a protest or put it on Facebook or Twitter and, you know, no police, no prisons. It's much harder to build the kind of infrastructure and relationships that we're actually going to need to do that. Um, so pods is a way to build out that web of support and build out, in my mind, pods is a form of community infrastructure that we're building. So basically you look at your life and you say, who are the people in my life that I already do or that I would call on to support me if I was surviving violence, meaning violence targeted to me, or maybe if I did harm or caused harm or, or even like hurt somebody or made a mistake and really royally messed up, or if I witnessed violence or harm, or maybe if I you know, know somebody who has caused harm, for example. So pods is a way to concretely start to name, like literally name those individuals. Who would you call? Who are you gonna call? Ghostbusters, no, but to li literally um, list those individuals and say, okay, my these are my, you know, two or three pod people. And I do have to say, just as a side note, um, it is not uncommon for people to have like one or two pod people in the beginning. Totally, totally. It's not a popularity contest. And mapping your pod is a very, it can be a very sobering process because you have to remember, we, we live in capitalism. Capitalism relies on the breaking of relationships. And so we are not encouraged, nor are we supported to have deep, accountable, quality relationships with each other. Um, most of our relationships, most people have a lot more like surface level relationships. And so your pod, there, you can have as many pods as you want to. I, the two pods that I think everybody should have, though, well, I should say three, but but the first one everybody usually has, like people who can support them when something happens to them. Most of us have those people. Most of us have those folks who are like, you know, I'm down with you no matter what you do. I love you to, to the end of the earth, whatever. Um, most of us have at least one person in our life. Not all of us, but most of us do. But the two other ones that most people don't have is one an accountability pod, meaning people that you pot your accountability pod, meaning people that you can go to and talk to about your own accountability. Maybe I maybe I had a friend and we had a falling out or a fight, and I and it, and I know it's my fault and I want to apologize, but I want to talk with my pod pe people first, get support on how I apologize. Maybe even run do role playing and run that apology by them first, right? And then maybe they could say, "Hey, Mia." that actually feels like you're centering yourself more in this apology, let's do some more work. Um, but the second one is a local pod. Everybody should have people that they can turn to 
in their city, town, neighborhood, maybe even on your street. And we saw this during the pandemic, that that was really critical for so many folks when people couldn't, especially during lockdown, when people really couldn't like leave their house in a real way. Um, so accountability pod, local pod are, are two of, I think the most important pods that we can have, because then if something does happen, you have people that you can turn to specifically around your accountability, right? Um, I think the fear and the isolation when you mess up, when you don't have that is part of what le one of the many conditions that helps to perpetuate unaccountability or unaccountable behavior. Maybe that's a better way to say it. No, that's that's so helpful. And I'm really excited for um, what you're going to write about. We'll put in the show notes um, the resources about pod mapping, um, but we'll also look forward to another version of, of that that we have heard through the grapevine that, that you're writing. The best way to stay in touch with that is to sign up for our soil lifter, which I know you're going to put the website in the thing too, so mm -hmm. people can, yeah. Great, great. So uh, to go off that a bit, what are you really excited about teaching in the moment and in the near future? What's coming up? Uh, so one of the things is this new, these new pod maps and like this more extended pod uh, write up and then the trainings that will come with that. Um, but really, Tina, one of the things that um, I talk to you like I'm talking on a like a talk show or something. Really, Tina. Um, <laughs> but one of the things that I'm most loving right now is uh, doing these like um, TJ facilitator trainings that I've been doing, um, which are much more in depth. They're like multi-year trainings. And then the TJ intensives, the 101s, which are just like entry level. Um, those are those have been so fun. I've really been enjoying those. Um, but the, but the thing that I love, like one of my favorite trainings that I do that I get to do in the, at least in the, um, facilitator trainings, I get to do these. Uh, but I do standalone ones as well is trainings on, on communication, like basic things, like how to listen, how to share accountably, what is like active listening and how to, how, how, to, how to even like do basic things like reflect back to the person what they're saying. Um, I literally had a call last year, last fall, where I reflected back because I didn't understand what the person was saying. And I, I was like trying to get clear. And I had to reflect back like 16 times before we actually got to, I thought I was clear at certain points, before we actually got to what they were actually trying to say. So we, again, we have a lot of work to do. We don't even know these basic things about communication and, and we don't communicate well, which leads to all different types of conflict. Um, so yes, that's, that's one thing I love doing. Do you uh, do these trainings with um, institutions of higher education to help them heal? Their you know, we could do it with, I'm sure I could work it out with anybody. <laughs> Let's talk. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, well, before we ask our last standard question about what you're listening to, reading, consuming, watching, whatever, um, that you would that we would all like to recommend to our to our listeners, I'm wondering if there's anything that we haven't covered before that 
that you want to make sure that you um, that 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 we name or lift up here today. Questions you wish we had asked us that we didn't. Things you want to plug. Um, yeah. Uh, well, I mean, I want, I always want to plug soil, but I do want to say, I don't know if I said this. One thing I should say is that um, transformative justice to me, at least is everything that I talked about on this podcast, but like all the way up to, and most importantly, it's a transformative justice was created to respond to really specific types of harm and violence, like domestic violence, sexual assault, child sexual abuse, child abuse. And so I think sometimes we can get lost in the um, kind of low level things, you know, like, and that kind of work, accountability and our healing, our communication, our apologies. But just to, I really want to be explicit and say like, all of that is in service of being able to respond to these forms of violence that are have been just notoriously, historically, so hard to respond to and that the state has, um, really done a number on in particular and criminalized so heavily. Um, and that, you know, part of TJ and abolition at large is, is about not outsourcing these responses that then end up coming to bite us in the, probably can't curse on here, end up coming to we curse all the time on this. Oh, great. <laughs> don't end up coming to bite us in the ass later, you know, through whether it's around criminalization, punishment, et cetera, more violence, um, more entrenchment of social control and power. So I, 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 I always want to be clear with that because um, I think those forms of violence in particular, even though, right, we have this contradiction of, they're some of the most common forms of violence, and yet they're things that nobody really wants to talk about. They don't want to listen about. They don't want to look at it. They don't, and and that's part of why they continue. It's not it's not the only reason, but it's part of it. Um, so I do want to say that. And then, um, oh, there was one more thing that now I've forgotten about. Um, Oh, I can't remember, but if it comes to me, I'll say it. If you come, if it comes to you, we'll just have a little, you'll, you'll, you'll say, stop. I, it came to me. Yeah. And I want to do a plug for uh, Mia's science fiction short story uh, in Octavia's Brood, which when I got the book and I saw you were in it, I'm like, oh, I know her. <laughs> and, uh, hello. It's, it's a, it's uh it does a lot of it includes a lot of these themes um yeah. about working through and uh, and addressing violence and interdependence uh Thank and you, to, to create the future anyway octavius brood interdependence is the way forward it is the only it's our only chance at survival <laughs> yeah so Lucia, do you want to ask the last question too sure what are we it, only because if I ask the last question, I don't have to answer it first. Um, so what are we listening to, reading, enjoying, basking in that we would like to um, that we would like to pass on to our um, our listeners and to each other? Mm, that's so good. And Mia or Tina, you can both go first as long as I first or second, as long as I get to go third, so I can think while you uh, talk. We, we know Lucia's watching Love Island, right? Yeah, <laughs> that's right. 
<laughs> no judgment. No judgment. No judgment case. here. Yeah, that's right. Do you want to go, Tina, or do you want me to go? You go. Okay. Um, so I finally was able to just watch everything everywhere all at once, which was so good. And so I was very much basking, to use your word, in that and just like really just blown away. I thought it was, I thought it was amazing and I I loved it so much. Um another thing, well, something that I watched recently that I would have never watched is this Western called The English. And it's on, I think it's on Amazon Prime is how you watch it. And um, uh, it stars Emily Blunt and Chaske Spencer. And I listen, no matter what you think about the story or what have you, it's about um, uh, colonization. And it's, the cast is pretty much all like white folks and native folks. And but I, the plug I want to say is, or the thing I want to say is that Chaske Spencer's performance, he's a Native American man playing a Native American man. Um, his performance and acting in that is just, it's so good. And so like, you know, there's other things with everything we watch, nothing is perfect. But I do think that like, it's so rare that we get to see native people getting to play native people and also in like a lead role like that um yeah so anyways there's you know I so I would say that and then the other thing I just want to okay but the last thing I'll say that I really really enjoyed is I just recently listened to the book um I'm a big book on tape person um the book platonic which is about I know attachment theory is like all the rage but it's about attachment theory in friendships, talking about friendships. And it was such a good, I really loved it. I thought it was such a good book. Um, and I was like, I was excited to listen to it. But sometimes when I'm excited about things, they're not as good as I want them to be. But I got so much out of it. And I just think as somebody who loves my friends and I love friendship and I think it's an underrated relationship that I wish there was more uh like art and movies and like just I wish it was like a whole genre just you know like how we have the rom-com like I wish there was like a whole thing like that for like a friend com I don't know what it'd be called but um or like a romantic friendship stories or whatever um I know there's a there's some that exist but I really really loved it um yeah and then I mean, there's so many, I've already listened to like so many books this year that I could talk about too, but. Okay. Um, one thing is uh, one of my favorite groups, Ranky Tanky out of Charleston, South Carolina. They do a lot of roots music and they won a Grammy. I'm really excited. They're, take a listen. They're fantastic. Um, and I use them a lot in classes. They do a lot of social justice roots music. Uh, and then um, Neil Brennan's Comedy Hour. I think it, I forget what it's streaming on. It's called Blocks. It's very creative. An artist friend of his made blocks that he, uh, or shelves behind him and he pulls out a block and, and it represents some of the humor uh, jokes that he's telling. And they're very well written. Uh, he talks about his own depression. It's just, you know, he was a writer for Dave Chappelle on the Chappelle show. So he he goes there in ways that are really 
oh, he went there, you know. Uh, and then, of course, because I do apocalyptic stuff, I have to watch The Last of Us. And more, I mean, I just, I get so weary of zombies, but uh, it's, uh, this is zombie 2.0. I mean, these are zombies that the more, I mean, it's always, I'm yelling at the TV, shoot them in the head. You always shoot a zombie in the head, not the chest. But it doesn't matter because these zombies are interconnected and any kind of movement sets them off. Uh, and the, there's a famous third episode. Um, I recommend everybody to watch it and then read Michelle Goldberg's editorial in the New York Times on it. So that's, um, yeah, I've been binging a lot of apocalyptic stuff. Oh, and one more that it's funny. I haven't done all, you know, gone through, but like two episodes. It's a mockumentary called Kunk on Earth. And I'm pretty sure it's on Netflix. <clears throat> and it's um, an actress, comedian who's British, who takes on the role of a kind of David Attenborough, uh, going all over the world, making commentary. For example, uh, in the Islamic world, um, they were known for doing maths, plural. <laughs> and the most famous Islamic maths was Al-Jabra. You know, I mean, it's, it's, and then she interviews academics and it's just, it's really quite funny how she's skewering the whole genre as she's trampling all over the earth anyway. So. <clears throat> That's amazing. And if Al, it took me like, it took me like several beats to algebra <laughs> is, is algebra for if, if you, anyone is slow like me and listening to this, um, I, we needed to repeat that. Yeah. that's um, <laughs> Great. Thank you. Um, I guess it's my turn. My really lovely friend and colleague, uh, Emily, Emily A. Owens, who teaches um, in the history department at Brown University, just published a book called Consent in the Presence of Force, Sexual Violence and Black Women's Survival in Antebellum, New Orleans. Um, it's a really heavy book about um, anti-Black violence, about sexual um, terror, um, but also about Black women's survival, um, as the subtitle indicates. And the question that Emily asks is, in a context and antebellum New Orleans when white men could have access to Black women's bodies um, for free, um, when they're socially, economically available to them, why were there contexts where people would have monetary and gift-based transactions um, in the sex, sex trade? And she reframes our understanding, not only of that historical moment, but also about like, what does consent mean? What does responsibility mean? She makes this argument that it, when, when, um, sex is understood in terms of a transaction, people become responsible for the violence against them. And I've been thinking about um, sort of discursively responsible, not actually responsible, but I think this relates to how we think about accountability, how we think about consent or non-consent, um, how we think about who is responsible for violence and not, um, I think relates to this, this conversation we've been having about repair. And so um, I just, you know, if anyone is listening and like wants a historical um, perspective on some of this, that's also just like really beautifully written and um, a kind of historical work that is full of, of care and, and love. Um, 
is I would just really recommend anything that uh, Emily Owens has ever has ever written. And um, I'm really proud of this this book that you know, proud of her for this book um, in, a, in a friend in a friend way. And since we're talking about friendship and care and harm and all of that, I, I thought I would I would lift her up. It's from the University of North Carolina Press. Just oh, came out. Well, I have one more book to recommend. It's very much related. And this is Humanitarian Capitalism. It's it's Duke University. Capitalist Humanitarianism. <laughs> uh, yeah, Capitalist Humanitarianism. <laughs> And it is Duke University Press. It just came out in January and it's written by our own Lucia Holsether. It's fantastic. It's very well written and it will make you uh, aware of yourself in the capitalist world in, in some really important ways. So congratulations, Lucia, on your publication. I, I th thank you. I didn't know that was coming. <laughs> right. It's that, yeah, it's out. It's out. It's out. Um, yeah. Anyway, well. Mia Mingus, thank you so much for coming onto this podcast. Nothing never yes. happens. Yeah, thank no, you. Thank you for having me. Within the conflux of shadow and time, there was room for all of us. And I knew I must extend myself until the molecules parted and I was spliced into the image. I never knew it could be like this. Nobody ever kissed me the way you do. Thank you for listening to Nothing Never Happens, the Radical Pedagogy Podcast, and our conversation with Mia Mingus. Our audio engineer is Aaliyah Harris. Our theme music is composed by Lance Eric Hagen and performed by Lance with Aviva and the Flying Penguins. Our outro music this time is again by Acrasis. It's called Reality Is My Girlfriend featuring Clavius Crates, Max Bowen raps guitar, and Mark McKee beats and trumpet. Acrasis music is available on bandcamp.com. After now six years of running the Radical Pedagogy podcast as a mostly self-funded operation, we've decided to open up opportunities for our listeners to support our work. Your donations will help cover the cost for maintaining our website and streaming services, as well as the pay for our amazing audio editors and student interns. Thank you in advance for your encouragement and support as we've taken this journey together. Look for us on patreon.com. And thanks for listening.
hesitating, that'll be your last play. I'm serenading cabins, emptying the cache. Cascades from the crescent of fertility. Ask the maidens, I'm undressing with virility. It's all respect, and I've been blessed. It's something new to me. Do what I can in accordance with my immunity. I guess it's hubris.